Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode, I talk with Kaylee Walsh of Outlandish, a UK-based digital cooperative that wants to unleash technology's potential to make the world a fairer, better place. Similar to Inspiral, who I interviewed back in episode number 7, Outlandish's long-term aim is to build a network and support services that make it easier for people working in tech to have good work and make a good living while working for social change. Kaylee and I talked about her experiences contributing to the cooperative, the challenges that come with balancing autonomy and collaboration, and a whole bunch of other things. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Kaylee, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to be interviewed uh, for the Working Together podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. No, it's it's great, and you know we have had a lot of back and forth on this one, so yeah, <laughs> it's great that we're finally getting to have the conversation. Um, Absolutely, thank you for getting in touch with Outlandish. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting organization, and um, you know just reading about it from afar online, uh, there's lots of commonalities and similarities with other organizations out there, kind of like it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Cool. I'm I'm really excited to kind of hear more about uh, how Outlandish works and such. But kind of before we get to that, um, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests is to tell me, you know, a bit about uh, kind of the story of their organization, like how it how it started and kind of came to be what it is today. Um, sure. So yeah, that that would be great to hear that from you. Cool. So um, Outlandish was started in 2010 by two friends who were developers. Um, and I, from what I've heard, they were kind of, they were frustrated at um, inefficiency in, in tech projects and, um, and people not delivering high quality work. So they proactively took it into their own hands and, um, and it all started from there really. So they used to just code around a kitchen table and um the third so this was an LLP when out, when Outlandish started um which is a limited liability partnership and mm. basically it means that you own the business um and then it got to three people so with three developers and then the fourth person that joined was a project manager and finance and and kind of everything else apart from the development um so those were kind of the early years of Outlandish. Hmm. And then it kind of, it grew quite quickly. So this was all before I I joined, but it, it grew quite quickly. It hasn't, it hasn't always been plain sailing. Um, mm-hmm. It did nearly go bust about two years ago. Okay. And that was kind of the product of allowing everybody to do whatever they wanted. 
which I suppose is quite a, an interesting and valuable experience for any organisation to go through because it meant that people weren't really accountable. Some people weren't accountable for the work that they were delivering. Hmm. Um, and so that was an interesting time and, and quite a few people left. And, but luckily, the original members stayed on as well as a few other people that had joined. Um and it's always been a nice organisation in terms of it's always been owned by the people who work at Outlandish and it's always done pro bono work with people who can't afford to pay for tech usually, so charities or smaller grassroots organisations. Mm-hmm. And and we continue to do that today because it's really it's really important for us to deliver technology to people who might not otherwise be able to afford it. Um, because tech is quite a privileged sector in in terms of the amount of money that you can charge for it and the amount of money that projects are worth. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we as we got more clients, the need for more people to work at Outlandish grew, mm. and it has it's the biggest size that it's ever been at the moment. Um, it's always operated and how like many I said. It's always been known. At the moment, um, how many? So we've got eight members who own the business, and then I think we have about twenty-two other people invoicing us. Twenty-two other freelancers, wow. off the top of my head. Yeah, so yeah. it's quite big, and and some some of those people are based remotely, and some are part timers, and so on. But um, but there are quite a few of us now, and then. Last year, the reason why I've I've mentioned about the way that it's operated is because last year in September, we officially became a co-op. Okay. Um, which was quite a worker co-op, which is quite bureaucratic because unfortunately it, it is in the UK. But we just felt like it was a very important step for us. Um, we'd, we'd operated as a worker co-op for a very long time, but I suppose we wanted to make it official. Mm-hmm. And we think worker co-ops are a brilliant way to do business. And we kind of hope to lead by example and encourage more organisations to become co-ops, especially in the tech sector, because mm. it it makes a lot of sense. A lot of the time it is started by people who either know each other or are friends or, um, you know, the business is owned by them, but it's just not, not a cooperative. Mm-hmm. So I, po- I suppose that's outlandish in a nutshell. We kind of, we have um, the organisation's, Organisational structure is three concentric circles. So we mm-hmm. have collaborators and the the first circle um, who are freelancers. And then after 70 days of full-time work, you can apply to become an outlander. And an outlander means that you have committed to the organisation and you intend, hopefully, to become a member, which you can do after one year. And then the membership means that you own the business with the other members. Um, and we practice things like we practice sociocracy to the best of our abilities. We are in the tech sector, so we deliver data tools and quite complex. We like complex data projects for a range of clients. So we work with people such as the BBC and the Audience Agency, um, NUT, who are the National Union of Teachers, um, and then right down to small charities such as Daily Life or um, Act Now. Hmm. So it's quite a range of people that we mm-hmm. work with. Yeah, and I noticed that you guys did a lot of work during the uh, during the snap election that happened there too. 
Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. Our workloads um, increased considerably in that short time. Hmm. And that a lot of that was pro bono, or was it uh, stuff that, or pro bono, I guess, or even um, stuff that was kind of of your own initiative? It seemed kind of like it was. It was a bit of that too. Yeah. So we we also use. This is a, a good time to mention that we also use CoBudget, which was built by Inspiral. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that this works is that we are very open that we pay less than um, normal market rate to anybody that works with Outlandish. And that's for a few reasons. First of all, we're quite we're big believers in that you probably don't need to earn over £100,000 a year to, to live well. Um so our high, our top rate is £375 a day and we have a three-to-one pay ratio. So the, the top met, top paid people get paid £375 a day and the lowest paid get paid £125 a day. And our cleaner is included in that. Hmm. Um, and one of the reasons that we do this is because we allow everybody who works with us on projects, on projects rather to decide where the surplus that they generate go to. Mm-hmm. And um, we use CoBudget, which is this really great tool by by Inspiral. Sorry, so it's kind of a symbolic bank account, and we work out how much each person has contributed to the surplus individually, and it goes into this kind of online bank account. Um, and we we use it to fund outlandish investment projects. So quite a few of the of the election projects that we did were mm. funded by our own surplus, and they were outlandish investment. Um, a few were paid. So NUT, who are a, a repeat client of ours, they got in touch. Um, and that was that tool was unbelievable. It was very successful before the election, but it just, it went, it grew incredibly during the election. And, and it was, it's a brilliant tool that basically, um, it makes data transparent that the government have published, which it usually just comes in PDFs and it's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. Nobody can, you know, you'd have to have to sit down for days kind of thing to be able to understand or even start mm-hmm. to understand where they're going to apply cuts and by how much. And so a very clever person from NUT originally used this, uh, that, that PDF to work out how many, to, and applied a formula that the, the government had released to work out how much cuts about 18,000 schools in the UK were going to receive. Mm -hmm. This is the Um, National Union of Teachers, is that right? Of teachers, yeah, yeah. So we, and we really, really enjoy working with them. They're a really great client to work with. Um, And then come the the election, um, the same person who had been working on it for quite a long time, our contact at NUT called Andrew Baisley, he managed to work out um, what each manifesto commitment from the three main parties, so the Conservatives, Labour and Lib Dems, mm-hmm. meant for these, I think it's 18,397 schools in the UK. Wow. So um, every, and it started out, it started off as 99% of schools were going to receive cuts by the, the Conservatives and they actually had to reduce that to 93%. Um, but all of the, those schools in the 93% were going to receive cuts. And it was amazing because you could scroll down and see the amount of cuts that mm-hmm. um, the Conservatives were going to make. But Labour were actually going to increase budgets to schools. So you could see how much each school would receive. And then that breaks it down in terms of what it means per 
pupil and per teacher as mm. well. Cool. And then Liberal Democrats as well was also quite um, quite bad figures. But basically, the this tool allowed um, normal, like just general public, once you access the website, to lobby your candidate to fight against these cuts. Mm-hmm. It, is, it was a huge moment for election campaigning and allowing the general public to lobby their, their candidate. Um, and it was extremely successful. So we're very proud of that. Yeah, There's no. also... Yeah, it was it was it was a really great great project to work on. We're very very proud of it, and it gained unbelievable traction. There's a, a figure that's been going around that um, estimates between seven hundred and fifty thousand to one million votes were uh, voters from who were originally Tories um, changed their minds because of this one website. Really, that's a huge. That uh, is yeah, huge. Yeah. That's amazing. So I mean, this figure, is yeah. this is a really interesting example of yeah. kind of what your um, your decision-making model and your organization kind of enabled. Because if, if you were just a regular development company, um, right. you know, the, that surplus would be going towards whatever else, right? But in this Well, so instance, the thing is, is that this is a really good example of, of what that can do as mm-hmm. well, because this originally did start as a project that was co-budgeted, mm-hmm. but it was actually before we were using co-budget, so it was a fellowship, but we did we collectively decided that we were going to to work. Um, we, we pledged £10,000 towards this project, mm-hmm. but it was such a great tool. It was initially called Keep London Schools Great, but it was such a great tool that the NUT commissioned us to work, uh, to take it nationwide. So, you know, that's phenomenal on, mm-hmm. on both sides that, that, they were, that they were very happy with the work and also that we put that, that amount of money up front in order to create this tool, not expecting anything. We just mm-hmm. wanted to make sure that the data was transparent. And actually, it, it went from that small project to a nationwide election-changing campaigning tool. That's, mm-hmm. that's amazing. That yeah. is, yeah. No, that's, that's a great yeah. story. Um, and that's just kind of one of the, one of the types of projects that you guys work on, right? Like there's, it's, it seems like you do everything from kind of the social impact stuff all the way, probably to like the nuts and bolts kind of software development stuff to, you know, pull in revenue and things like this. Right. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of interested in, um, you mentioned a few things when you were talking about your, uh, uh, the outlandish kind of origin story there couple of things mm-hmm. one one was this period of time where there was too much autonomy it sounds like you know right. and people were just yeah. freely um uh choosing to work on whatever they wanted to and then uh, you mentioned things like sociocracy and you yeah. mentioned co-budget and we talked a little bit about co-budget there um but mm-hmm. i just i'd be curious to hear from you um you know you mentioned some of the things that you guys learned during that time when there was too much autonomy yeah. And and I'm wondering if you can go into a little more detail there about how that kind of led to your shift towards these other kind of more, I guess, cooperative or sociocratic models, I guess. It sounds like mm-hmm. it was very anarchic almost before. And then you guys kind of you know, realized that that wasn't that, that wasn't leading you in the right direction. Yeah, so it's it's hard to to comment on it um, in too much detail because it was before I was at before Outlandish, time, right? Yeah, um, but the, I, from what I've gathered, the main issue is, is just that people weren't taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Some people, 
taking responsibility for work that they were doing or for the quality of it or looking after client relationships mm-hmm. um and and then and as a result they weren't looking after the longevity of outlandish um and quite a few people left so the people who did stay who were the original members plus i think off the top of my head two other people i might be wrong um kind of I suppose they recognised that, well, they knew that it hadn't worked, but Outlandish is quite dedicated to allowing and facilitating that people are autonomous. And that's also kind of like one of the base um, the base principles of a worker cooperative as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. To, to enable that. Um, so, so separacy was introduced to facilitate facilitate uh, cons- consent-based ma- decision-making mm-hmm. and to also prevent certain people having to be left making the decisions as well. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to be accountable and it's because it's, part- it's, it's based on participation. If you are not involved in that decision, and whatever decision it might be, then the the gist, is, kind of the idea, is that you're you're happy to not be involved, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the way that we use it now at Outlandish is that we have circles, which are kind of like the equivalent to traditional departments in an organisation, and those circles use sociocracy to make their decisions. Um, and how does that look and- in practice? Like when a circle is deciding on something like let's say there's you know one circle here has a project that you know nobody really kind of wants to work on but it's necessary to get done does that mean that there's like only like two or three people there and then another (laughs) circle that's like the you know the nut uh project on school cuts there's like everybody from outlandish is in that room wanting wanting to pitch in so one of our one of our aims um, as an organisation is to make sure kind of one of the outcomes that we we want to achieve is to make sure that we put the right people on the right project. Right. So we have a PM circle, for example, who is their responsibility to do that. Like project management. Um, yeah, project okay. management circle. Yeah. So we have we have quite a few circles. We've got project management circle. We've got the tech circle. We've got the people circle. We have a finance circle. Uh, members, business development, um, probably a few others I can't think of at the top of my head. But for for example, I am not a developer. I don't have technical skills, hmm. so I don't attend the tech circle, and uh, and that kind of implies that I trust in the tech circle to make tech decisions for Outlandish, mm-hmm. which I do. Um, and the way that the meetings work, or the, or the circles work rather, is that meetings, the idea is to be in a circular formation. And when when it comes to making a decision, a proposal is made and then you do a round of, of clarifying questions and then you do another round to raise any critical concerns. And if, the critical, if any critical concerns are raised, it means that that proposal is not going to be passed. Hmm. So... This is slightly different if you think about it to, for example, democracy, because mm-hmm. with democracy, you have a vote, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that your voice is always listened to or you're always happy with a decision. Whereas sociocracy, 
tries to prevent that from happening or it does prevent that from happening and it also facilitates communication within a group as well mm-hmm. um so um, in the so, in in the sociocratic model it sounds like the veto yeah. power i guess it comes from this this critical concern right that some that's, yeah. that somebody might have so somebody raises it and then they say this is i think this is a critical concern and then others in the group will be like yeah you're right that is and then it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't pass from that point forward kind of thing right, right? yeah and and sometimes sometimes that might mean for example although this is usually picked up in the critical concerns um that a a proposal wasn't going to be well it means it's going to be part it's not going to be passed but sometimes it might mean that you need to just reword it hmm. mm-hmm. or or it just needs um, a kind of a bit of tweaking or else what is interesting is actually when you start with one proposal and with the concerns or the questions that have been raised, you end up proposing something else because it also allows the person who has proposed in the first place to kind of rethink what they're proposing and maybe rethink why and mm-hmm. reword it. So it's actually a really, really interesting mm-hmm. um process to go through Mm -hmm. and yeah so we try to use that as much as possible sometimes time doesn't allow for it so you can do like a rumio for example which is just like more a a thumbs up or a thumbs down kind of thing Mm -hmm. and there is a tool called called lumio which is Mm -hmm. which is why the rumio version exists um which facilitates online as well right yes and that's also in spiral as well yes it is who i talked with I, as I'm sure you know, back in uh, I think last last year at some point, but uh, there's an episode with with Joshua Vile where we oh, talk cool. about Great. a lot of these, a lot of the kind of teal organization type stuff. And, yes, which uh, you know it's all it's all related to what you guys are doing too. So that's that's really yeah. that's interesting. So these these circles they're kind of more they're not necessarily project based. It sounds like they're more kind of themed around. No around kind of a whole program area in outlandish like business development. Yeah. And so how, how then are, are the projects dealt with? Cause you guys are a, you're a service company, right? So you, you're out there um, providing uh, tech services largely. Right. Mm-hmm. And so those, yep. those projects, are they kind of done by, by the project managers? Is that how it works? And then they have a team of people who work on things. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we have we have project teams, and we we don't have many rules at all at Outlandish. But if there was, if there were one rule, it would be that every project needs to have a project sponsor, a project manager, and a tech lead on the project mm-hmm. to make sure that we are delivering high quality work. Um, so we have a tool that was built by one of our developers called CoPitch, which facilitates freelancer collaboration. And we'll put all of the team details into that. And essentially, everybody does an a electronic signature in a, in a way. So you tick a box, which means that you are committing to deliver, deliver the work. Mm-hmm. And that's to prevent any uh, miscommunication or misunderstanding and that you don't get to kind of the end of the week or the end of the sprint and somebody say, oh, I didn't know I was supposed to deliver that. Right. So... We have the information is captured in CoPitch. People tick the box, and then um, if you, if for example, I go on annual leave or um, the developer needs more time than I do, I can reallocate some time to somebody else in the team. 
um, because you put the amount of days that you, you're committing to work as well. So the budget feeds into that, hmm. which is really, really useful. Um, and we have like the usual, we work uh, with agile project management, mm-hmm. but, but we use it as a way, in a way that, that works for Outlandish. Um, so we have daily stand-ups and we check in with the team and find out what they did yesterday and what they're going to do today and if they have any blockers. Cool. So that's how the, the, the project teams, internal and ex- external projects work. Interesting. Okay. And I, I guess another element to all of this is, um, you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the sociocratic model and the co-budgeting. We talked about how you guys came to that through your, you know, mm-hmm. through your challenges around too much autonomy. Um, yeah. And, and also this, this kind of, this problem of delivery, like you, you need to kind of figure out some way within your organization to ensure that even though you might have this non-hierarchical system, there's still some sort of way to hold people accountable or hold each other accountable. Cause there isn't really a, yeah. I mean, I guess the project manager has some kind of leadership role, right? How, you know, how, how do you guys find that balancing act? Cause when I talked with uh, Joshua Vile at Inspiral, mm-hmm. one of the things that he said was, was always kind of this ongoing balancing act was between autonomy on the one hand and needing to have some sort of kind of accountability or, you know, um, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's this balancing act that needs to happen there and and how do yeah, you guys sure. navigate that how how does that how so, does that feel for you guys so there are a few things that we look out for when people get in touch with us mm. and obviously skills are really important for whatever whatever role that we that we need to fulfill but um culture is really really important as well so just having just an alignment of of the ethos mm-hmm. is really really important um so that would be kind of like the early stages and then sociocracy is also referred to as dynamic governance as well mm-hmm. so it kind of that one of its aims is to redistribute the power in an organization and there are a way of a number of ways that that's achieved. So that's kind of the content-based decision making that I've already mentioned. But there's also um, a feedback loop as well, which is really important. And and the way that we try and practice this as best as we can is that we do have a, um, training, which mm. is delivered by an external consultant who's very close to Outlandish, but he mm-hmm. doesn't solely work with us. And that's really really important. So we have sessions. Um, called Learning to Empower, which try and, and give everybody involved the right tools to, to communicate properly and to, to, to kind of accept, understand the accountability that mm-hmm. is implicit with, with working with Outlandish as well. And also, I guess it's quite, it's a great place to work in, in, in the sense of when people come on, they usually get stuck in with with this kind of thing so with with the with the culture and because we're a cooperative as well we have the seven cooperative principles around the office um and because one of accountability is one of those one mm-hmm. of the bases of of being a worker co-op it's kind of you know like the message is there mm-hmm. um and that's not to say that it it comes it it comes with challenges um but it's definitely worth it and and we know that that everybody who works with us um, kind of just we all write it out together, I suppose. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's I think it's important to to mention that you have to be really committed as an organization and that does mean investing in things like investment uh, sorry in training um and and communicating why you're doing it as well and, and we we definitely do try to do that mm-hmm. and so that to me like I, i'm hearing a bit of your story in that as well like how how you've kind of come into the organization i'm wondering maybe if you could tell me a little bit about how um how somebody joins up because i know you mentioned you have these concentric circles of collaborators yeah. outlander and then to membership and you only have yeah. about eight owners right now uh, right. or only I, eight is still pretty good <laughs> yeah <laughs> but so how yeah. so how many of those 22 freelancers are kind of working towards the the ownership and and what what kind of dynamics have you noticed there is there are there challenges in that kind of journey from kind of becoming a collaborator to becoming an owner or is it are you guys still kind of figuring that out um so there are four of us there there are four outlanders at the moment and i for example i would definitely like to be an outlander uh, sorry a member um, one day, and I and I presume that the three other outlanders will. We do have one case of one person who has chosen. She's applied to become an outlander, but she'd like to remain there. But that's mostly because, well, for two reasons. She's a, a freelancer by trade, so she freelances with lots of other organisations mm-hmm. in the charity sector, and also her partner is one of the members. So that's completely understandable. You don't want right. to make outlandish your entire life or even you know kind of more than what it already is mm-hmm. um so that was the, that's the answer to the first question and i think that i mean i know that there are challenges around it um there are challenges for a number of reasons so it's kind of like a curveball in a sense to work to work with outlandish especially at the start because the way that traditional organizations work is that it is usually top down mm-hmm. and there's never usually the um, opportunity to own the business mm-hmm. and so that that's one thing and it kind of it's it took a little while for me to get my head around that and it also took me a little while to be like oh okay so if I essentially I, I none of us have a fixed job role so mm-hmm. we're very we've got a lot of freedom into what work we do with Outlandish um, the aim of it is to be valuable to Outlandish but I don't have a specific role uh, like I did in my previous job. Mm-hmm. So things like that that are that are kind of personal challenges. And then there are also challenges around implicit hierarchies that do emerge and understanding how to deal with them and um, and and the way to communicate things like that. Mm-hmm. And then I think also um, for me, I I didn't really know anything about cooperatives before I started with Outlandish, and we became a cooperative cooperative we started we had actually outlandish had already started the process to become a co-op um but i just kind of threw myself into that hmm. and i think i think um that's kind of prepared me in a sense to become a business owner because i recognize the responsibilities but it doesn't make it i mean it's quite scary in a way right that mm-hmm. you're that you own you part own this business with your with your co-members that I think there is an, an element of, of that, but at the same time, it's a huge privilege, although I, I wish it wasn't, I wish it was the norm, but it's not. 
Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I wish that I wish that more people had the opportunity to do that. There's um, kind of, but, uh, you know, I can kind of see what you're saying, though. I mean, on the one hand, we want to have um, these these sorts of models accessible to as many people as right. possible, right? But then, yeah. on the other hand, um, there is a certain degree of, I guess, vulnerability almost in in moving into that ownership role in a cooperative, right? Yeah. Because you're, yeah. you're suddenly now you know, it's, it's kind of the, the success of the whole enterprise and kind of taking care of all of the people within it now rests partly on your shoulders. Right. And yeah, you know, legally at least, because we do like to think we're all in it together, but legally you, you, you are responsible for Mm -hmm. the company. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that, there's something that happens there. It's yeah, you're, you're right. You know, there, there, the culture can be that everybody's everybody's taking taking a turn at that helm so to speak right but the, yeah. but there is um i mean just in in committing uh the amount of time necessary to kind of move from a collaborator to an outlander and then from an outlander to a to a member um yeah. you know you kind of you have a bit more devotion and skin in the game essentially right yeah, and, for sure. And, and I think what what differentiates that from from like a conventional business is that you know with a conventional business you're just left with this, I don't know, like it's it's kind of like a ladder model of yeah. of professional development. I mean, like even the terms professional development and all this stuff, like it's all it's all about it. It becomes all about you as the productive yeah. worker who's trying to like, you know ratchet up their skills and expertise so that they can climb the ladder. Whereas this is more like you're trying to move into um, a circle. Right. And also, so there are a couple of reasons for that. And that's, that's so you could probably, you you could potentially earn more money Mm -hmm. and and get a promotion kind of thing. And then you can go and work somewhere else. And Mm -hmm. so you've kind of got the, got the name down your CV and you can move somewhere else. Whereas this is a lot, uh, worker co-ops are a lot more than that. And um, one of the seven principles is that you, it's collaboration over competition. So you're not, you're not competing with your peers mm-hmm. or with other organizations, which is really, really important because there's a lot to, there's a lot to learn from each other mm-hmm. um, and a kind of a, a different, a different way to look at things. So rather than like, what's, how can I get ahead? It's like, how can my, my organization improve or, or, or how can my sector improve? Um, but also, Obviously, there's an element of exploitation in traditional organizations mm-hmm. and worker co-ops really strive to to prevent that from happening at all because it is about the empowerment of the worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, that's really, really important about them. And that's important about, I, I suppose, um, if you want to kind of class it in this way, I suppose that's, that's a, a huge factor of being a successful member within a cooperative. So you, mm-hmm. you're recognizing that it's more for the co-op um, than than for your personal gain, and also just knowing that you're not being exploited, and that you know the the mm. CEO is is or or the shareholders are reaping the benefits of your your labour. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. There was also something I remember that you asked as well about how people how people become collaborators, mm-hmm. and that's kind of through a range of channels. So sometimes people email us and they get in and and they they get in touch to ask how they can get involved. 
and the conversation just starts from there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we meet people at events. It might be, for example, one one person got involved, got in touch with us after he'd heard about a project that was one of our fellowship projects. So this was kind of pre-co-budget time mm-hmm. when when we also did the NUT stuff. We did we did quite a few other projects, and one of those was a project called Cycle Streets, which is is, is aimed at cycle campaigners in the mm-hmm. UK, but but based in Cambridge. Um, so somebody from Cycle Streets did a presentation about their work, and they mentioned that they had received um they were they were in a, a fellowship with outlandish and a, a developer got in touch with us that way so it might be through an event that somebody's heard our name mm-hmm. it might be just people finding us on github or um a, a footer on one of the websites that we've made or an event that we've run so there's, there's quite a few channels that, that people can get in touch with us and we always like to hear from people and why why they would like to work with Outlandish or um, what they can, they can see themselves doing. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because we, we seem to attract really nice people as well, which is great because it's always nice to have a good chat about what we're doing and what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's so interesting uh, just compared to other organizational models, how the cooperative can kind of, like you were saying, it's collaboration, not competition. And that, that principle yeah. kind of begins to permeate um yeah a lot of what what happens you know and it it becomes less about hiring somebody and more about hey do you want to come in and collaborate with us and i the root of collaboration is co-labor which is working together so that's what yeah (laughs) that's what i'm all about right here yeah which Um, is also funnily enough what gung-ho means apparently in chinese um yeah but it has it was I think it was when the Americans saw it, um, saw communists um, in China working together. They were like, "Oh!" And they 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 somehow picked up on gung ho. They interpreted it more as um, all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Rather than working together, which is quite fascinating, quite interesting. I think. You know, and so yeah, <laughs> yeah, like just just kind of a lot of the examples that we've talked about today, and we can. We can wrap up after this with a few uh, rapid round questions, but j- I just noticed something, right? So, like, the way that you guys are structured and the governance of it and how you do co-budget enables you yeah. as a group to make decisions on projects that, you know, are kind of more for the broader good. You know what I mean? Like, you can, as yeah, a group, for sure. you're, yeah, you're like, we should do something on this problem that yeah. nobody else seems to be doing anything about because you know, they're, they're public problems, right? Like trying to figure out how to get the data set, you know, from the ministry of education or whatever to make sense to people, you know, Mm -hmm. arguably the government should be responsible for doing that, but you know, they're, they're kind of not doing a good job for various reasons. Right. And so you guys step in and you're like, here's a solution. Um, and then, so like just on the side of what you work on, you can see how it impacts it. And then on the side of, you know, how you, how you work together, you can see the impact there and how you collaborate with external organizations. Very cool. Gung ho. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, gung ho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and there's also um, one important thing that I haven't mentioned um, yet, which is Kotec, which is a, a network of digital cooperatives that we helped establish last year. Mm. So there are 26 of us at the moment. Cool. Involved in this network. 
Um, and we we kicked off the network by meeting after speaking for it, kind of trying to organise it for a little while. We met last November in the only worker-owned stately home in the UK, which was a very hmm. apt um, location. And, um, and yeah, so we have this really great network, which is really engaged of digital co-ops. And the reason why we say digital is to keep it broad. Hmm. We've got a huge range of, of co-ops that are made up uh, that, that make up the network and we have successfully pitched for work and won it together um we've collaborated on on projects on kind of long-term projects hmm. um and and the collaboration has gone all over the network so it's not it's not just that kind of outlandish for example has collaborated with a, another co-op loads of the co-ops are collaborating and it's really really interesting and brilliant to see and we hope we hope that more. We hope, first of all, that we can attract more nice tech companies to convert to co-ops so that they can join mm. Co-Tech. Mm. And we also hope that um, other sectors that are that are co-ops, oh, sorry, other co-ops in 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 other sectors can can do something similar mm-hmm. and and essentially strengthen the cooperative movement as well. Cool. Yeah, and yeah. that sounds. Yeah, that sounds great. Is that just in the UK that group, or is it is it uh, international? So at the moment, it's U- it's UK based mm-hmm. because it it had to start somewhere, I mm-hmm. suppose. Um, and also, I think actually we did find Cotec, like a Cotec based in the states. So I think there is a network in the states, although I don't know how active it is. Hmm. Um, but we do have a forum on Discord which is communities.tech off the top of my head which is the public facing forum for anybody to get involved and people can introduce themselves they can just be observers or um you know find out how we do stuff and ask questions and that kind of thing great well i'll, I'll is, be sure to put so that in the show notes brilliant uh, thank you so much and um i guess just in in terms of some of these quick rapid round questions here so Coming yep. to this theme about uh, about converting organizations, what would you say to an organization that isn't a cooperative yet, um, but is kind of thinking about it, but they're they're not quite sure what what first steps they should take? Um, I think the first thing that I would say is I would ask them how they operate, and if they're if the answer is kind of loosely based on, oh, we all own the business or we all have, we all, we all make shared decisions on the business, then that's, that's a good indicator that they would work well as a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're based in tech, I would say, and in the UK, I would say, well, there's this really great network that um, you could become involved with if you became a cooperative and I would also say that it's an open to anybody who is considering it, that it's it's a statement that you're you're not going to exploit your workers, um, which is really, really important, especially in this day and age. Mm-hmm. And as, in the UK, the cooperative sector is a huge part of our economy. So unfortunately, not enough people know about them, but they are very it's a brilliant way to do business and you can be a limited company or, you know, you aren't restricted in, in, in what kind of company you are, but you mm-hmm. are making this statement about not exploiting your workers. So I would say if you're interested in it, then read up about it or 
find somebody who does know about it and get in touch with them. Because what you'll find is that usually people who work with co-ops are really happy to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of feeds into the whole sharing sharing yeah. side of it. Yeah. Um, okay, so one other quick question here is, uh, you know, in terms of kind of key resources and, and books and things like this that you would point people towards, what would those be? Ooh, that's a good question. And funnily enough, we've started a book group, which, and we're meeting for the first time tomorrow. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it depends where they're based. I think in the if you're based in the UK, then probably Co-ops UK is a good place to start. And then I would probably, I would look up, for example, Cotec, just to see how it all works um, and to see the range of organisations that are, are worker co-ops. Um I can't remember any names of books off the top of my head, which if anybody from Outlandish listens to this, they'll probably be a bit upset, but I can definitely... <laughs> That's okay. You can, can always email me and then I can put them yeah, in, the, thank you. in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. I think I... So I've just read Creative Forces of Self-Organization, I think it's called, which is like a 23-page PDF mm. on... Free PDF on sociocracy. So, for example, I would suggest that, which was, it's a really good way to understand the benefits of sociocracy and how to practice it. Um, but that's not strictly related to being a worker co-op. I think, actually, to be honest, the first thing to look up are the seven cooperative principles and find out if those sound any good, because mm-hmm. if they do, then that's great. And if they don't, then you probably shouldn't become a worker co-op. Right. <laughs> yeah. well, <I'm- laughs> I believe in exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, some people might be like, why wouldn't I exploit people for profit? And you're like, well, okay, then you're, you're probably not the right right candidate then. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, we're at the hour, Kaylee. Um, right. It's been, a, it's been a great conversation with you about, about Outlandish and all, all the things that you guys do and, and, and how you work too. Uh, which oh, is great. super instructive for listeners uh, who are interested in in this this model of the digital cooperative and uh, and how to kind of do one. I would hope I'd hope that there's people out there listening to my my show and and thinking about starting something like what you guys have done. So yeah, thanks again for for the chat. Uh, and you know we'll 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 keep in touch hopefully over the over the next little while and and keep the conversation yeah, going. For sure. That would be brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks, Kaylee. Right. Thank you. And bye. Bye bye. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com. 